The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing April 12, 2019. Is the current president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, complicit in the Rwandan and Congolese genocides? Why did the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda suppress evidence of the Tutsi militia's involvement in the murders that triggered 100 days of bloodshed in the African country? Who was responsible for establishing the one-sided narrative of the 1994 genocide that persists to this day? How do Western political and business elites continue to benefit from the cover-up of the crimes of the Rwandan Patriotic Front? On a week in which Rwandans are mourning the victims of the 25-year-old Rwandan genocide, the Global Research News Hour radio program explores an alternative interpretation of events, one implicating the Tutsi-dominated forces of former RPF General Paul Kagame in the brutal killing of hundreds of thousands of people during one of the most gruesome and reviled acts of inhumanity in recent history. We will hear opinions from radio show host Phil Taylor, a former investigator for the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda, and get a breakdown of the events of 25 years ago from Judy Reaver, a Canadian journalist who spent 20 years researching the Rwandan genocide and detailed her findings in a 2018 book. On this week's program, Rwandan Genocide Revisited, Impunity for War Criminals that Serve Western Interests. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 12, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akim, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The media blackout that has shrouded the true impact of NATO's intervention in Libya for the past eight years helps enable the U.S. and its NATO partners to perpetrate additional proxy wars and political interventions elsewhere. As the U.S. openly pursues aggressive regime change in Venezuela and meddles in the internal politics of nations across Southeast Asia, the fruits of U.S. intervention in places like Libya should always be kept in mind. What is most alarming of all is considering that the U.S.-led intervention in Libya may not necessarily be a failure. It is only a failure if one believed the U.S. truly sought a better future for the nation. However, if the fruits of perpetual chaos and an equally perpetual pretext for the U.S. militarization of Africa were intentionally set out for from the beginning, then in many ways Libya was a resounding success. That comes from the article Battlefield Libya, Fruits of U.S.-NATO Regime Change by Tony Cartolucci, posted April 10th, originally published at New Eastern Outlook. So what should we make of the fall of Baghdad 16 years ago or the broader invasion and destruction of Iraq, which by now has clearly turned out to be one of the most important events of the 21st century? One, 
that greed for power often causes leaders of powerful countries to lie their citizens into waging wars against less powerful nations. And given the sophistry of modern weaponry, those wars are now costlier in terms of destroying human lives than ever. Two, this is especially true for democracies where, as Julian Assange explains, quote, wars are a result of lies, unquote. Lies such as Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, Gaddafi is providing Viagra to his soldiers to rape women, Assad is attacking unarmed Syrian civilians, etc., all of which have now been proven untrue. Third, had these lies been exposed early enough, there is a chance that all these wars could have been avoided and millions of lives spared. That comes from the article, The Fall of Baghdad, 16 Years Ago, A Moment That Defines the Events Now Shaping Our World, by Iresh Omar Jamal, posted April 10th. Russia has herself constituted the status of nuclear superpower for decades, and there is consequently little doubt that NATO's march eastwards has become an existential threat to humanity. It is remarkable to witness the strong support that NATO retains from famous institutions and elite figures who are, as a result, actively encouraging a nuclear conflict. The New York Times on 14th of January 2019 outlined under a heading of New Concerns Over Russia that NATO is a, quote, military alliance among the United States, Europe, and Canada that has deterred Soviet and Russian aggression for 70 years, unquote while the Ukraine and Georgia are, quote, two non-NATO members with aspirations to join the alliance, unquote. There is no mention in the New York Times analysis pertaining to NATO's rapid growth following Soviet disintegration and the grave danger to our world should the Ukraine and Georgia merge to the organization. Nor does the New York Times evaluation discuss NATO aggression directed at Afghanistan, Libya, etc. That comes from the article, Elite and Media Support for NATO, Increasing Threat of War with Russia, by Shane Quinn, posted April 10th. To support the persecution of Assange in these circumstances is to support absolute state censorship of the Internet. It is to support the claim that any journalist who receives and publishes official material which indicates U.S. government wrongdoing can be punished for its publication. Furthermore, this U.S. claim involves an astonishing boost to universal jurisdiction. Assange was nowhere near the USA when he published the documents, but nonetheless, U.S. courts are willing to claim jurisdiction. This is a threat to press and Internet freedom everywhere. That comes from the article, Chelsea and Julian are in jail, History Trembles, by Craig Murray, posted April 12th, originally published on the author's blog site. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. April 7th marks the beginning of a week of mourning, marking the anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. At a solemn ceremony in Kigali, the country's capital city, Rwandan President Paul Kagame, in the company of foreign dignitaries, including Canada's Governor-General, laid a wreath and lit a flame at the Kigali Genocide Memorial, which will burn for 100 days, corresponding with the duration of the infamous killing spree, which claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. 
The massacre had been triggered on April 6, 1994, 25 years ago this month when an airplane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi was shot down over Kigali. The standard narrative holds that the Rwandan police and militia proceeded to kill Tutsi and moderate Hutu leaders who could have taken control in the ensuing power vacuum. Hutu civilians were recruited to arm themselves with blunt and edged weapons and attack, kill, and rape their Tutsi neighbors. The Tutsi-dominated Rwandan Patriotic Front opposed these genocidal forces and took control of Kigali by early July, ending the genocide. There is, however, a counter-narrative that holds that it was the forces of the RPF commander, Paul Kagame, now Rwandan president, who instigated the violence and were responsible for much of the bloodshed to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people. This counter-narrative and the evidence substantiating it is at the heart of this week's Global Research NewsHour radio program. We start our inquiry by deconstructing the official body that was tasked with investigating these crimes against humanity. The following interview was recorded on Thursday, April 11th. Well, joining us right now from Toronto uh, is uh, Phil Taylor. I'm, I'm very delighted to finally have him on my show. Uh, he's been, um, you know, probably one of the uh, the few people, even in independent media, who's been uh, really tackling some uh, hard-hitting topics. Uh, Phil Taylor, and in addition to his work as host and producer of the Taylor Report on CIUT 89.5 FM, he was a former private investigator for ICTR defense attorneys, and uh, he's become a, a prominent critic of the court. And of course, he has also been uh, you know, one of the, at one point, virtually alone in uh, crit- critiquing the Rwanda genocide narrative, a one-sided narrative. So uh, I'd like to welcome you, Phil Taylor, to the Global Research News Hour. Well, thank you very much. Now, first of all, Phil, how did you get involved with the ICTR? I was working uh, in Toronto at the firm of uh, Roach Schwartz, for Charles Roach specifically. And um, we were... Uh, Charles Roach was a pan-Africanist. He was very involved with issues to do with Africa uh, and followed events there. So uh, we were following uh, the armed struggle that was going on uh, inside Rwanda uh, from 1990. October 1990 was when the uh, RPF invaded Rwanda from Uganda. They were led by officers of the Ugandan army. Anyhow, we were aware of that. And when the terrible events of April 1994 occurred uh, and the uh, RPF prevailed in an armed conflict with the Rwandan army, uh, it was announced there was going to be a um, tribunal, a United Nations uh, established ad hoc tribunal. And Charles Roach and myself and others said uh, it seemed unlikely that there would be uh, very many lawyers uh, willing to defend the people who had been described in such terrible terms uh, by the mainstream media. Uh, We knew that the events there had not been accurately depicted in the New York Times, Washington Post, elsewhere. Uh, So... uh, Charles and myself, Ramsey Clark, and others uh, made sure to uh, approach uh, people accused and said, 
if they wished to have uh, counsel, uh, there were people willing to step up and uh, act in their defense. <clears throat> and as a result, um, I found myself uh, going as an investigator. Uh, as my, The first lawyer I worked for actually was Luke de Temmerman, a, a Belgian lawyer, uh, and then Defend Dixon and others. Uh, and I, that's how I got in, uh, engaged with it. Mm. Maybe could you tell me uh, about a couple of, of anecdotes that, that really stuck out for you as you were uh, pursuing this, uh, this investigation? If I heard you right, it's anecdotes, right? Yes, anecdotes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what really, it was, what stands out to me is that uh, in the opening address to the court, the prosecutor, uh, Louise Arbour of Canada, said that... Uh, this was going to be a standard of justice. It was going to really be a display of how wonderful uh, Western uh, values and what could be brought to bear. This is going to be uh, uh, not going to. She very specifically said it's not going to be victor's justice. And uh, and it, the other great mission was they were going to end the culture of impunity in Africa, which. Yeah, you know, looking back on that phrase now, you realize how insulting and absurd that is. There was no culture of impunity in Africa any more than there's a culture of impunity here, where people don't get charged who should be charged, as the public would know. Um, and it did turn out to be uh, a victor's justice, because no one uh, from the RPF side, the Rwanda Patriotic Forces, army um, was ever charged and it uh, so that stands out in my memory uh, because it was in that sense uh, false completely false um, and indeed impunity was given uh, to the present leadership of the government of uh, Rwanda it was uh, even though investigators working under Louise Arbour found that, in their opinion, uh, Paul Kagame's uh, personnel had assassinated two African presidents on April the 6th, 1994, triggering the bloody events that followed. That was a direct report to her. That was suppressed. There was never any prosecution, not just of any of his officers. There was... No RPF person was ever charged. So it was victor's justice, and it was impunity for the present government. They created a story in which the present government, Paul Kagame, uh, were basically the good guys, and anyone who posed them were the bad guys. Uh, the only other, well, one other anecdote that stands out for me to show them how the philosophy of the court, uh, Judge Kama, presiding over the court, uh, found himself one day at a press conference uh, an un because there had been an unexpected glitch in the beginnings of the court, and they had not been able to open the court when they had expected. And there was a lot of media from around the world had come there for the great grand opening of the first trial. And, the, and so they, in order to entertain the media, they decided to have a, or keep them occupied. Kama gave a little press conference. Anyway, uh, he said, uh, now the big fish have been captured. 
He meant by that that some well-known individuals who you and I would presume think should have the presumption of innocence were described by the man presiding over the court as big fish. So that's what I remember. Mm. You you touched on the um, the uh, oh, Michael Horgan's uh, UN investigation into the murders which triggered the genocides uh, back in April 6th, and, and, and then Louise Arbour essentially obstructed it. What, I mean, has she, have you been, or, or have you ever had a chance to confront her uh, about that, or, you know, why, uh, you know, the rationale, especially coming from someone who, as you said, was claiming that there's not going to be victor's justice here? Uh, why that was suppressed? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Michael Horrigan, by the way, is a very conscientious Australian lawyer, outstanding man, and uh, we've lost him, I'm sorry to say. I did interview him a couple times on my program. Uh, the world media pretty much ignored him. He got some attention in uh, Australia. People should know the story of Michael. Uh, he was working with uh, a man named uh, Lyons, a, um, a FBI uh, investigator, quite competent, outstanding individual, in my opinion. Anyhow, they made the report um, in which they said it was the evidence was, in their view, uh, compelling that Kagame was behind the assassination of the two presidents. Well, they had to suppress it because they had another narrative, which was the Kagame narrative, which was that the Hutu, so-called leadership of Rwanda, were uh, extremist fanatics and had killed their own president. And if you were to introduce that idea, uh, even properly investigated and have it even talked about, then you, you were going to interrupt the established narrative. And, of course, they argued uh, the social peace of Rwanda. They had, uh, he had secured through violence uh, his authority. And if you were to say, well, there are actually some evidence that he might himself be compromised, obviously the whole thing would fall apart, in a sense. Um, and so in the name of maintaining a peace and serenity in Rwanda, it was considered best not to mention that, these matters. Uh, and uh, I think that's the principal uh, reason they, they did it, and are continuing to, actually. Mm. Louise Arbour was replaced by Carla Del Ponte, and she seemed to be dedicated to getting to the truth of the RPF's involvement. What, what dis- insights do you have in, into the mechanisms at place that effectively sabotaged uh, what she was trying to do? Well, yes, I thank you for reminding me. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Carla Del Ponte seems to have been cut from different cloths. She, uh, I saw her in court a few times, and uh, and I was impressed when she seemed determined to sort of balance the ledger a bit because she had all kinds of evidence. So after all, it was a war, and that produces war crimes. And, and you, they don't usually war crimes don't just fall on one side of the fence. So uh, she had ample evidence from her own investigations uh, that uh, of crimes committed by RPF personnel. So the impunity extended beyond... Uh, Kagame himself to anyone uh, functioning under him, she challenged that. And she was told uh, she could not do that. The man, you know, the man who told her that she couldn't do it um, and told her not to do it 
not to continue looking into or thinking about bringing charges against uh, Paul Kagame was uh, Pierre Prosper, who had started off at the ICTR in Arusha as a prosecutor. He was an American prosecutor from Los, Los Angeles. And then after he left the ICTR, he went on to bigger things, and he was given a special post. Uh, I used to call it the genocide ambassador for the United States. And so she found herself in a room with him. He's just an American representative uh, discussing whether or not she's going to continue uh, raising the possibility of RPF crimes. As a result, uh, she her stubbornness led to her removal, uh, basically. Uh, she tells the story rather very well herself. Uh, and while I wasn't sympathetic with her methods in prosecuting, I was certainly, mm. uh, I think it's really important to note that she did buck the system at a certain point and say, look, you know, I'm supposed to be looking into crimes, and I, I can't do it to suit political uh, interests, particularly of the Americans. I don't, well, everybody should ask, why would the Americans get so in, involved in all this? Why is it so, why isn't it the U.N.? Why is she talking to this U.S. ambassador of genocide or whatever it was. What was in the, the, the ICTR itself and the, the structure or, or the limitations that may have been inherent to that, uh, that, that process? Uh, would you say it comes down to certain personalities or was there some certain things that, 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 that limited its, uh, the scope of this investigation, I mean, if it's 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 favoring a, a certain narrative, then it, it dares not tread in the area of RPF involvement, uh, given the uh, the role of 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 the of, of Kagame in in actually being president of uh, of, of Rwanda. So, so, what are your thoughts about some of the, those structural constraints? I think you, uh, the ICTR, from those who designed it, was there to aid and abet. Uh, Kagame's uh, consolidation of power. Uh, I believe uh, that what was taking place was that when he uh, got power through sheer brutal force, took over, uh, he had very powerful allies, and uh, but most of them in the West. I don't think he was very... African leaders were watching him closely, uh, and they had a rough idea who he was and were not enamored of him. I think that they had a problem when they wanted to make the case that uh, there'd been a, a uh, planned uh, genocide. They wanted to criminalize anyone opposed to them. So they, but had Kagame been that been left to him and his uh, resources, uh, the African states around him, uh, if he said, uh, "You have a criminal there, uh, I want you to turn him over to me," they would ask him, "Show me the evidence." show our country the evidence we're sovereign states and we know a little bit about this and he wouldn't have gotten uh, cooperation as a matter of fact there were problems There's several states had turned him down already uh, on because you can't just automatically say arrest somebody and bring him uh, but if the United Nations ICTR gets involved they say well we're not you see we're above the battle this isn't victor's justice. We're simply trying to establish, you know, good guys, bad guys. Uh, and therefore, you should turn them over to us. Which mm -hmm. they, that 
was harder, it would be more difficult for a state to say to the United Nations, well, no, no, we're not going to cooperate with you. So they said, sure, well, okay, we'll cooperate with you. Uh, and so in that sense, UN was doing the bidding and uh, working, as, it, as they said, very tightly uh, with the Kagame government. So I think they were helping him uh, consolidate his power. And one of the things they obviously agreed to was that he could not be compromised. They had to make sure they protected him, or he had impunity, and he has impunity to this day. For years, you've been uh, virtually a, a lone voice, at least in, in the English language, in uh, challenging that the official assumptions around the Rwandan genocide. What kind of pushback have you received? Now we are seeing, which would, would inevitably happen, is that the population, uh, which of course lived the experience and they have their own ideas and knowledge of the matters, um, uh, they have been generating an, uh, new spokespersons, people who want to see the truth told properly and in a forum and where people are not criminalized for having opinions um, and permitted to describe things uh, act more accurately than has been before. Now there's Victoire Ingabiri who is in prison, uh, not in prison, well, she's under, basically, I'd call it house arrest in Rwanda. She did seven years in prison for simply stating uh, uh, in a reasonable way that uh, the narrative about uh, the events has been lacking, putting it mildly. There's a second woman, of course, uh, Diana Wigara. She is, I like the fact that uh, Victoire is Hutu, uh, Diana is Tutsi, but they agree on something. And that is that you have a narrow, uh, militarized state uh, that is uh, heavily supported by Britain, uh, United States, and certainly now France, Belgium, um, which is not that permits no breathing space or opportunity to bring to, to fruition the, the original concepts of a multi-party system and the and the people's right to uh, uh, have uh, a actual vote and participate. Uh, and, of course, Kagame himself has invaded the Congo twice. He's had threatened uh, his neighbor Burundi. He's harbored in Rwanda armed elements that, that attacked Burundi. He's threatened uh, the, the prime minister of Tanzania in a, in a nasty way. He's assassinated uh, people in South Africa, who used to work for him, and in Kenya, with the famous Sendashonga was murdered in Kenya. Kagame virtually admitted it the other day that it was a decision of the state of Rwanda. Um, so there is unhappiness with the way he conducts himself and, uh, with, and the question about why he enjoys such strong support in Ottawa and Washington. I think this pushback, I mean, there is, eventually, as I say, the truth will out, and also the London people are not going to continue to live under a narrow, uh, militarized regime. I was curious, though, about you personally, if, if you've gotten pressure from anybody, whether it's outside figures or from within your radio station or, or anywhere <laughs> else, you know, if you were... <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, there, there have been people who tried to... Uh, prevent my even discussing this, actually. 
uh, not the station. Station is a very courageous and uh, protector of the, of uh, open airways, and they uh, just, we should be very proud of alternative radio in North America. There's not a lot of it, but uh, yes, uh, some prominent individuals have said I should not be allowed to do interview people. <laughs> I interviewed terrible people like the former prime minister of Rwanda, Faustan Togiri Mungu, uh, and others. I talked to General Colonel Marshall of Belgium, who was himself right on the scene in April 1994, wonderful man. He uh, suffers from honesty and therefore gets in trouble too. Um, and uh, I've talked to uh, the families of assassinated people. Um, to me, that is a responsibility, a duty I have from my, my experience. I'm supposed to say what I know, what I've seen. Uh, yeah, I've had some, but I guess they call it pressure. I don't mind it at all. <laughs> Phil Taylor, it's been a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you for sharing your insights with our listening audience. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. We've been speaking with Phil Taylor. He is the host of the Taylor Report on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and a former private investigator for ICTR. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Finalist for the Hillary Weston Writers' Trust Prize, Canadian journalist Judy Reaver spent 20 years investigating the crimes committed during the Rwandan genocide. In her 2018 book, In Praise of Blood, The Crimes of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, Reaver argues that Paul Kagame and the RPF forces he commanded were culpable in instigating the violence against hundreds of thousands in 1994 and then continuing the violence in Congo. The Global Research News Hour reached out to Judy recently for an interview. We commenced the interview with her recollection of how this story got hold of her and continue to hold her attention to this day. She explained that it started with her 1997 encounter with refugees in what was then Zaire, now Congo. She was a journalist accompanied by aid workers covering the humanitarian situation. Here she explains what she learned that shaped her impressions of what actually happened in 1994 Rwanda. Essentially what the Hutu refugees told me was that the RPF had killed their families during the genocide. Um, and because I had seen myself and had listened to so many accounts from Hutus in the jungle of how uh, they'd been chased, uh, hunted down, and their, uh, their family members had been killed. I believed what they said. Um, so it was diametrically opposed to, to the story that we had read in newspapers and that I had absorbed myself. Um, so this took a while to, uh, these ideas and all this testimony I collected took a while to kind of sift and shake down, um, but uh, I believed it and it was deeply troubling to me. I just didn't uh, understand to what extent the RPF killed, but there were a few reasons after that trip, which was life-changing, that I, I I, I uh, kept on the story. It was a puzzle to me that I labored over for two decades. I'd get a piece of it, and 
I couldn't see the entire picture. I didn't see the entire picture in 97. I saw the Congolese portion, but I saw only just a part of what might have happened in Rwanda. Um, but it bothered me so much existentially that I, I kept having to go back. So that uh, that's essentially how it began. Mm. Now, just to maybe so our, our listeners can get a little bit more clarity of, of what the allegations are here, um, we know that the RPF, uh, based in Uganda, uh, they, just north of Rwanda, that uh, this RPF group, they, they were dominated by Tutsis, uh, exiled from Rwanda. Rwanda. Uh, talk about the crimes, the, the actual crimes that, that, that you know, your research has, has led you to believe were committed by this group as they descended into Rwanda. Well, there, there are the crimes of the invasion war uh, that started in 1990. And you're right, the founders of the RPF, the principal uh, founders, uh, were raised in Uganda. These are Rwandan people who were raised uh, in refugee camps, essentially in Uganda, after the anti-Tutsi pogroms in the late 50s and early 60s. And so the, the, their story comes from a refugee experience. And there was a lot of bitterness uh, and anger among this group. And so when they tried to reclaim um, their place, uh, reclaim power, they invaded in 1990 and carried out a scorched earth campaign in northern Rwanda, essentially, and brought the country to the knife's edge by 1994. So the, that's the initial story. Now, my book actually deals more with the fact that the RPF um, planned and carried out the assassination of Habi Aramana, which was the act that triggered the genocide. And then the research that I've accumulated um, over the years from RPF uh, deserters and defectors and to victims shows that the RPF engaged in uh, a very well-orchestrated campaign of ethnic cleansing and, and genocide against Tutus in all the zones that they quickly seized from the north where they were controlling at the very beginning of the genocide, down the eastern side, uh, then up uh, from the south to the middle of the country, and then to the west to the north. They uh, cleared out Tutus, they targeted Hutu community leaders, and then they went after peasants. In, in, behind the military front, and they did this in, in a very um, organized way, and they concealed a lot of their crimes, in part because uh, they, because of propaganda, and they uh, portrayed themselves as moral victors, and the community, international community believed them, but also because they uh, hid a lot of the evidence. And a lot of people were killed and burned. The in, RPF uh, moved. The, the, the RPF park. moved very swift, swiftly after the assassination. I think that's that seems to be uh, one of the significant indicators. No. Yes, yes, they did. They they uh, seized areas quite quickly. And I mean to to make sure that listeners understand, Tutsis um, were being targeted um, in in all the Hutu controlled areas um, before the RPF arrived in those areas. So we have Tutsis being uh, rounded up and, and killed 
in Kigali. We have them killed in a number of areas throughout the country before the RPF arrived. Um, and, but what my book deals with is the dynamic of what was happening in RPF zones um, to Hutus principally. And my book reveals uh, paradoxically, and this is a shocking aspect for a lot of listeners, that the RPF infiltrated Hutu militias, and Hutu militias were the uh, dominant forces that killed most Tutsis in Rwanda during the Rwandan genocide. Um, my book gives evidence that shows the RPF infiltrated those Hutu militias with their commandos and amplified the genocide against Tutsis. So people will say, why would they do that? Um, and I've tried to explain in the book, and I try to explain to people who interview me that they did that in order to use uh, interior Tutsis, Tutsis who had always stayed in Rwanda under the Habyarimana regime, uh, and even before, they used those Tutsis as fodder. They used them uh, because they wanted the body count to soar, they wanted a moral victory, and they wanted to make sure that the Hutu militias and the, the, you know, the enemy forces were as demonized as possible. You also mentioned in the book these, uh, just to point you to the level of sophistication, uh, the civilian cadres that were invoked in these RPF-dominated uh, 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 areas. Can, can you maybe help, and, and you've spoken to people who are active with those civilian cadres. Can you maybe help our, you know, share with her, our listeners, you know, what, what you heard that, that inform, about these cadres that informed your understanding of how and why people uh, participated in the killings of uh, former neighbors and friends? Well, the, um, our, our understanding of the genocide is that there, it, this was a popular genocide committed by Hutus against Tutsi civilians. Okay, popular meaning that Hutu civilians picked up machetes and killed their neighbors. Okay, there is um, a substantial amount of evidence and some very good evidence, and uh, you know, through all the trial proceedings and all the testimonies, and even by researchers who know what they're doing, shows that you know, probably eight to ten percent of the Hutu population killed uh, their neighbors. Uh, but uh, what my book points out as well is that Tutsi civilians who became civilian um, catters for uh, the RPF and, for, uh, and worked hand-in-hand -hand with the RPF's army, the RPF and the Rwandan Patriotic Army, to do similar things. So um, these, a lot of these people were recruited uh, in the years before the genocide, and they were recruited rapidly during the genocide. These are Tutsi civilians, um, and who were trained or sometimes just recruited very quickly. So what would they do? They, they would have, in the same way Hutu civilians participated in the genocide against Tutsis, they would have singled out uh, Hutu neighbors and, and identified them for the Rwandan Patriotic Front in every zone uh, that the RPF uh, seized. 
And so they facilitated the massacres, and in, in, in many instances, they directly participated in the massacres. And these, these civilian uh, cadres, who were called something, uh, they were called abacada, are now called intore in today's Rwanda. And the, this is equivalent to a militia. So Kagame has long had his own militia. Uh, you know, there was what we all know as the Utu Interhamwe militia that operated against Tutsi during the genocide. Well, Kagame had his own militia as well. Mm. Now you've uh, you, you of course as I mentioned you've based your uh, your understanding on a number of, of interviews that you've conducted with uh, you know different people people who are involved in, in these uh, catters uh, defectors um, uh, you mentioned in particular uh, one individual uh, Teo Jean Marwan Shialka I know that's been a point of contention in, in some of the the, the criticisms uh, critiques I've heard like for example Gerald Kaplan. Um, what, what can you say to those people who might have some skepticism about the uh, credibility of the sources and that you're not just being drawn down the garden path? Can you, can you speak to that? Well, you know, a number of people like Gerald Kaplan um, have suggested early on, not understanding my work, that, you know, I'm relying on, you know, <laughs> always this pejorative term, Hutu Genocidaire, a uh, very uh, you know, blanket statement, and and uh, to be honest, the level of sources. As it, as I mentioned, I started off interviewing Hutu victims in Congo. Then I expanded that to uh, refugees worldwide in Europe and from Africa, other areas, uh, other countries in Africa, and here in Canada and the United States. Then I started accessing former RPF guys, so soldiers and soldiers soldiers and officers, pardon me, uh, like Teogen Merwan uh, so, uh, and And I interviewed so many of them, and so many of their stories coalesced. Uh, and they, uh, many of these guys uh, had enormous courage, uh, and they fled uh, in the early years in about 2000, 2001, as soon as they could. Some of them fled later. But the large majority of my sources are, are former RPF guys who are not affiliated with any political opposition group. Uh, some of them are, of course. But, I mean, there, there's just such a pattern of atrocities that they describe, which then uh, bubbles up in the other layer of sources that I have, which is UN leaked documents and interviews with officials. So I, I think Gerald Kaplan and, and, and a few other people who criticize my work are, are, are quite disingenuous because there's just so many different sources I've used. Um, many of them actually have been uh, bold enough to give me their name and they speak on the record. Not all of them, of course. I mean, the, most of them, except in particular people who are still in Africa, who uh, could be killed any day by Kagame and his agents, uh, they can be named. And, you know, I think everyone understands how anyone who's researched this understands how Kagame and his regime 
operate beyond borders. They kill dissidents. They kill people who speak out against them. And so the suggestion that, that I should have, you know, my, my, my work is undermined by using anonymous sources is, is really quite um, extraordinary to me, especially when the Bible of the Rwandan genocide, with which we, we believe, you know, everyone believes Human Rights Watch's account of, of the genocide, which is Leave None to Tell the Story, I would say a majority or, you know, a good part of their sources are anonymous as well. Maybe elaborate a little bit more on on the kinds of... uh of threats that have been faced. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about some of the people who were, you know, coming forward, but, you know, first of all, you, you, I wanted to give you a chance to speak to some of the threats that you yourself have personally had to confront. Well, I mean, I I had from the get go, I had very, very scary experiences in Congo trying to do my job as a journalist. I filed reports in 1997 one that got a lot of attention on, on CBC radio about Rwandan soldiers massacring Hutus in Bandaka. I found myself in a villa in Kisangani on the Congo River, and I was, you know, the villa was being fired upon. My window was being fired uh, at by unknown military forces. Over the years, as I've intensified, I've, I took this up more actively and full time. I've been chased. I've been threatened. My family has been threatened. I've had car problems that have made me wonder whether or not uh, people here in Montreal are, are um, you know, uh, fiddling with my tires. I have been protected by Belgian state security uh, while doing interviews in, in Belgium in, in 2014. Uh, more recently, a few weeks ago, I was in Texas and had to be protected there by police, by a SWAT team uh, at a, at a, a conference um, where I spoke. It's really extraordinary. But, you know, I'm still here to talk about these issues, but I just want to say one thing about the, the threats that are leveled against it. I mean, what I'm experiencing is nothing compared to what the Congolese and Rwandan whistleblowers and journalists and human rights activists and, and others who have tried to sound the alarm. These people have attempted to expose Kagame and, and his regime and, and the crimes they've committed. They've, in some cases, done it publicly or, or privately to UN tribunals or in other jurisdictions, and they've paid with their life. And, and others have been jailed, or they've, been, they've disappeared, or they've been accused of crimes for speaking out. Nobody has protected them. The international community decided instead to protect Kagame, and I would say we're still living uh, in that universe. This is still going on. Now we have, um, you mentioned uh, in the book, uh, a London-based NGO which uh, created the narrative, or you claim created this narrative about the genocide as a, a Hutu-instigated bloodbath uh, you know, exclusively. Can you supply us with full disclosure about that NGO and uh, connections that uh, may have compromised its objectivity with regard to Rwanda? 
Well, the NGO I talk about in the book, uh, and there's been some very good research on, on this NGO. It's called African Rights. The research that I'm referring to has been done by a guy at Notre Dame University named Luc Redams. But I've done my own research, and he's done um, uh, the bulk of it. And so this NGO is called African Rights. It's, it was run by Rakia Omar and Alex DeWall. And within weeks of the genocide ending, they wrote a huge compendium of, uh, of after the genocide ended, of, that included uh, an instant charge sheet naming most of the Hutu perpetrators and claiming that the RPF stopped the genocide and they were the moral victors. So it also claimed that the Hutu government, the former Hutu government, conspired for years in advance to commit genocide against Tutsi. And, and it turned out that this narrative that they sold uh, in this book, Death, Despair, and Defiance, was created hand-in-hand with the RPF and its civilian cadres. So the book, uh, which was often called DD&D, had a big impact in the early years on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, that's the UN Tribunal. And even organizations like Human Rights Watch um, picked up a, a, a lot of that narrative and, and cited African rights work um, dozens and dozens of times in, uh, in its opus, leading on to tell the story. So we have journalists and academics absorbing this official narrative of light uh, forces against dark forces, good guys against bad guys, and and how, as well, all those terrible Hutus who fled to Zaire um, uh, had committed, you know, a, a good bunch, of, a bulk of them had committed genocide. It was sweeping. It was false. These, you know, Hutus as a group were demonized and gaslighted. And, and so uh, more work has to be uh, done in exposing these people. Where, I mean, it turned out that Maki Omar, uh, in the later years, we got evidence that she was receiving money from the RPF. Um, Alex DeWall, who was part of African rights in the early years but left, uh, he, uh, in an interview, bragged about creating the conspiracy theory that suggested that the, RP, the, the uh, Hutu government has planned for years and years to commit genocide. And then, you know, recently, uh, within the last few years, he uh, said he made that up, and he was wrong. Hmm. How do you make sense of, of journalists and, and human rights activists? I mean, this this narrative aside, I mean, you're, you're supposed to double-check and, uh, and, and corroborate and whatnot. How do you make sense of the way those sorts of actors fail to account for the evidence you and others have brought forward of the KRPF's killing spree, which was comparable to uh, that conducted by the Hutu extremists? Well, the, the official narrative is, it's been around for, you know, a quarter of a century now, and it's so compelling, and people believe it. Uh, so it's very hard to dismantle. My book came out last year. I mean, there have been so many... A, a, a lot of the evidence uh, about R- RPF committing human rights violations and having killed during the genocide and after, a lot of that evidence has been there. I just think the scope and scale of it has not been revealed. And 
you know, my, my book deals with the directory of military intelligence, and my book um, exposes uh, through official documents, confidential documents of the United Nations, a lot of things that maybe uh, people refuse to look at. But I think the, the problem is, yeah, how, 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 do, uh, how do we deal with the number of journalists who were covering the genocide and who were there at the time? How do we change their minds that they didn't, they didn't see what was going on or they refused to look at what was going on? That's a very good question. Um, I, I think it's going to take years of uh, before people actually completely begin to grasp some of this stuff. Um, I think we need to read more about it. I suggest people read my book, but, but I, I, I think it would be an even better idea for people to listen to the people who have fled, uh, for governments to listen to the people who have fled. I don't think we're going to understand um, the level of criminality of the Rwandan Patriotic Front and Kagame historically and today until he leaves power, because he has an, a, a very tight hold over people there, over their lives. It's, it's, a, it's a police state that he operates. And uh, with his embassies and with all of his cadres and agents abroad, People are very afraid to uh, to uh, reveal some of this stuff yeah. because they risk their lives. So it's going to take many, many years. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that uh, that Rwanda isn't a country anymore. It's it's a basically a powerful system of control. Let me just read a, from a quote from the book uh, from you. It says, "My world changed forever when." I discovered the degree to which Western officials acquiesced to and at times actively assisted a regime that butchered women and children in the forests I've visited. Even now, when politicians in the West speak about the democratic values they hold dear, my heart turns cold. Could you maybe give us a specific example of that active assistance that you refer to? Well, I'm referring to what I saw in Congo there, and my worldview shattered in 1997, and I grew up, I think, um, because where I was, I arrived, and just a few days after a major massacre had been committed by the RPF in a place called Bandaka. Uh, where I went to, but also uh, a few weeks before I arrived, the south uh, of the Congo River, south of Kisangani, all these refugees in the tens of thousands had been massacred by the RPF in, in, in under triple layer canopy in the forest. And while that was going on in April 1997, uh, there were brokerage houses and Western mining companies and Western officials, some of whom were from the U.S. government, uh, who were doing business deals, and they had been flying into rebel-held zones. So at the same time that these Hutu refugees were being massacred in the jungle, in the Zairean jungle, 
there were Western companies and their Western political backers who were uh, striking deals, and they were those deals were in were providing money to the rebel forces, uh, rebel forces, Kagame's rebel forces who were unseating Mobutu, and so it became clear to me that these refugees and, and Congolese victims were being sacrificed for uh, realpolitik and for, for these business deals. And it, it was, quite frankly, it was too much for me to believe and absorb, but it, it was true and I, I was seeing it. So it, it was devastating. Okay. And um, just quickly, uh, just beyond correcting the historical record, uh, what do you see are, are the consequences in the here and now for allowing the official story of the Rwandan genocide to stand unchallenged? This whole um, story is important because there's a feedback loop of human rights violations. So, I mean, if you look at the ICTR, UN Tribunal, they were not interested in accountability. Or reconciliation, they were interested in politics. And I think you can unfortunately see, and this goes to my, my point earlier, is that, you know, Kagame has been useful to the West because he's opened up a corridor to a corridor for the exploitation of minerals. The West has this quid pro quo relationship with Kagame. Uh, we know he's committed colossal crimes, but he's our man in Central Africa. Uh, we, we, why do we need, why is Central Africa important to us? Because it's where, where the world economy starts, with the copper, cobalt, tungsten, tin, and coltan. They're essential for all the things that we use, the electronics, the batteries, the aeronautics. So the, the, these networks of trade have been opened up, and, and also Kagame provides a keepers for the United Nations and that helps the U.S. in their war against terror. But it, it, it's, it's extraordinary, but we're allowing this cycle of violence continue to, to continue. So um, I, I, I think that's, that's the legacy. That's why it's important. And these are the risks going forward um, with, with our current genocide narrative uh, going unchallenged. Judy Reaver, I really want to thank you for uh, sharing your perspectives with our listening audience. And uh, thank you so much for uh, the amount of time and, and effort you put into putting together this very important book. Thanks for your interest. We've been speaking with Canadian journalist Judy Reaver, who is the author of In Praise of Blood, The Crimes of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. She joined us from Montreal. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.